Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I'd like to draw your attention this morning to the 146th Psalm, Psalm 146. If you turn there with me in your copies of God's Scripture. If you're usually with us, you'll notice we're not in Galatians this morning. Lord willing, we'll be back there next week. I don't like to talk about politics. It's one of those topics of conversation where heart rates and blood pressures and voices can rise at an alarming rate. We are told there are two things you should never talk about, right? politics, and religion. My whole living is based on the fact that I talk about my faith. (laughs) I stand up here Sunday after Sunday and talk about the Bible, seek to lead you in what it says. Pray that I communicate it in such a way that God uses me to draw your hearts and your minds to what he says so that you are changed. Some might say, whether it's behind this pulpit, behind my desk, on the phone, or those days spent drinking coffee with people at Starbucks, I miss those days, my life is built around speaking about God. Jesus Christ, the cross, the resurrection, faith, belief, repentance, obedience, and eternal life. And I limit greatly what I say about politics, except with my wife. Even though, even though I do not speak about our country's politics, we're in a season where we can't escape it. You might be tired of political statements. You might be tired about hearing all that's going on in our country. We must realize that God's word makes political statements. Statements that we can't avoid. Statements that we are supposed to hear and statements that we are supposed to embrace as truth because they are true. Statements like, Jesus is Lord. That's a political statement. And for us as Christians, 
our willingness to embrace it and proclaim it is the evidence of our political allegiance. My allegiance is to Christ. Above all else, above everyone else, Jesus is King. We also embrace statements like, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is a political statement. And to think where Jesus makes such a political statement. He had just said right before that, Do not be anxious about anything. Are you anxious? Do you ever worry? Are you ever stressed by the weight of life and this world? Do the what ifs plague your mind and shackle you to despair and depression? Jesus pinpoints your problem. And he says this, you've got a political problem in your heart. And the only way to remedy your political heart problem is to make a grand, true, God-glorifying political statement, seek first the kingdom of God. Are you anxious about the election? What should you seek? When I talk about politics, though, however, I bet you often are not thinking about those biblical political statements. You are thinking about American politics. You think about what's going on right now with our election, our current election. And right now, you might be worried about what I am about to say. To be honest, I wrestled with this. It would have been easy to go on into Galatians, and we will again next week, but there is something looming on the horizon, something that will happen this week in American politics, and it will affect your life. It's already affecting your life. And so this is an opportunity. Not an opportunity for me to express my own political views, not an opportunity to endorse a certain candidate, but an opportunity for us to listen to what God's word says. A time to draw our hearts to the truth. A time to seek the Lord with all that we are. A time to pray for his will to be done. A time to pray that righteousness would prevail. A time to pray that all those lost who are blinded by their sin, dead in their transgressions, would have their eyes opened by the gospel so that they might be made alive in Jesus Christ. A time to pray for God to pour out his Holy Spirit so his church is revived and his glory is made known to the ends of the earth. As I've been praying this morning and this week about what to say, I've been praying that I would show great equity in whom I offend. Whether you call yourself a Democrat, Republican, or wherever you are on the political spectrum, I pray that God's word shows great equality in cutting into us, our hearts, skillfully, 
surgically removing everything that is sinful, everything that does not honor the Lord, and continues to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Here is the most political thing I might say this morning. My most political stance. When we come to God's word, there are a few things that take priority in my thinking. When God created the world, he created human beings. He created Adam. He created Eve. And he created them as the pinnacle of his creation. He breathed into them the breath of life. He created a miracle. It's God's creation of life. Why we're here today. Why I'm here today. And so I believe in the sanctity of life from beginning to end. From the unborn in the womb to the 90-year-old lying on their deathbed. From the very beginning of God's creation, he created Adam and Eve and brought them together in perfect union and perfect harmony. God gave us the definition of marriage from the very beginning, a definition that we cannot and must not deny. And God also gave us a biblical design for human gender and human sexuality. He created them male and female. And he did so for a reason and for a purpose. We must not, ever, must not ever confuse those things. Again, those are right there at the very beginning of the Bible. You can't get past Genesis 2 without reading about all of those. As I thought about this upcoming week, I could not escape as I wrestled with God what I see is common among many and even common among Christians during this political season. With all of the rhetoric that we hear in the news, whether it's through the television, whether it's through print, whether it's through our phone, whether it's through the radio, we are constantly barraged with political statements, political projections, political promises, and political threats. The commonality among many is fear. Fear can easily creep in. We're afraid of what might happen. We're afraid of the outcome. We are afraid of who might be the president. We are afraid of the aftermath. And your fear can be manifested in many different ways. It can be manifested through hand-wringing, through timidity, would cause you to cower and want to run away and hide. That fear is easily recognizable. We know that kind of fear. There's another kind of fear, though. Fear could cause you to be very loud, very brash about your political views. The loudness is actually a facade for the fear that resides in your own heart. It might not look like fear on the surface, but underneath is this insurmountable mountain of fear. You hear what we read today in Psalm 46? I love this. Verse 2, therefore we will not fear, though what? A few different ones. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Does it feel like earth is going to come undone? That's what the psalmist is saying. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, everything that you know, everything that's comfortable, everything that, that you hang on to as secure, all that is stripped away, and then what does the psalmist say? We will not fear. With our propensity to fear, how are we going to navigate through this election? How does God want us to live our lives with the uncertainty in the sphere of American politics? How does God want us to respond first to Him and then rightly to the world around us? Well, let's read this morning. Would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's Word as we read Psalm 146? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. may be seated. When you come to the book of Psalms, how do you approach it? Here, a book of songs, 150 of them, one right after the other. Is there any rhyme or reason to how they're put together? Or have they just been all thrown together? As if to say, here are a bunch of songs in poetic form. I I hope you gain some comfort from them. I hope that they help you in some way. I do not believe that the Psalms have been put together haphazardly. They have a specific order. They have a reason for why they are placed where they are placed. Too often, 
we as Christians can just go and pick out a psalm and read it without ever thinking about where it is in the Psalter. Why it's there. And how that place in the Psalter might better help us understand what's being communicated. If you look at the book of Psalms, it's divided into five books. The first three books, that's Psalm 1 through 89, are following the Old Testament narrative. What happens from Genesis to Chronicles? It's not all in chronological order, but it's following those Old Testament narrative books as you read those first three books of the Psalms. They're retelling the story of what happens. When you come to books 4 and 5, Books 4 and 5 follow what we read in the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. And when we get to book 5, which is where Psalm 146 is placed, we're beginning to read how the psalmists are, are viewing life from the vantage point of the future. Everything up to this point has been reminding them of the work of redemption, specifically reminding them of the work of the exodus, of when God brought his people out of Egypt. When we get to book five, though, we're talking about a new exodus, a new exodus of God's people that is going to happen. And not only are the psalmists talking about this new exodus, they're talking like this new exodus has already happened. When you get to book five, the perspective is this. Christ is reigning and the exiles are coming home. He is the new and better David. We could summarize it like this. Book five is all about the return of Christ and about his rule. And so when you get to Psalms 146 through 150, those last Psalms, they become the exclamation point of book five, and they become the exclamation point of the whole Psalter. So when we read here Psalm 146, this is the beginning of that exclamation point. It's the beginning of the climax of the whole book of Psalms. An exclamation point for all of human history. And so then, it speaks to us today. If you look back, just one verse, Psalm 145 Verse 21 says this, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. That's what we're going to see happen now in the rest of the Psalter. We're going to see mouths that are praising the Lord. We're going to see all flesh blessing His holy name forever and ever. And at the very beginning now of this exclamation point, we are drawn to the sure hope of salvation for miserable sinners which comes through the Lord's reign. We're drawn again to the sure hope of salvation for miserable sinners through the Lord's reign. Isn't this what we lose sight of, dear brothers and sisters? It is the Lord who reigns, and it's His reign that causes us to respond in certain ways that will drive out fear that can plague our minds. And so, how are we to respond to the Lord's reign? How are we to respond to Christ's successful and triumphant victory that he's accomplished to bring about his rule and his reign? Three ways this morning that we respond to his reign. Follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful. But number one, 
Trust in the Lord's saving reign. Trust in the Lord's saving reign. Trust in the Lord's saving reign. These last four psalms all begin with the same word. It's one word. We see it translated as praise the Lord, but it's the word hallelujah. Maybe there is no better place to start with fighting our fear. Are you praising the Lord? If not, what are you praising? What are you exalting? What is it or who is it that is high and lifted up in your life? Who is it that is high and lifted up in your words? Our praise is meant to be directed to the Lord. He created us for this end, for this purpose. You were created to praise the Lord. And how important is it at this moment right now to focus on the very reason why you were created. You were designed to give Him glory and praise. And the psalmist says, tell yourself to do that. Command your soul. Give your soul this instruction. Soul, praise the Lord. We often think that it's insane people who talk to themselves, but now we find out it's actually Christians who should talk to themselves. If you're not praising the Lord, the idea is this, order yourself to do it. But behind this command, this order, this talking that's happening in the psalm is this desire. I tell myself to praise the Lord because I want to praise the Lord, because I want to proclaim that He is worthy of all honor and praise. And is that ever a struggle for you? Is it ever a struggle to praise the Lord? Do you struggle to have that desire in your life? Well, why is that? Is it ever because we struggle with simply desiring the Lord? My struggle to desire to praise the Lord comes from my struggle to actually desire the Lord Himself. If I want Him above all things, if He is the greatest treasure in my life, if I see Him for who He truly is, what's going to happen? I'm going to praise the Lord. This is a personal commitment that we say, that we make. My way of life is dedicated to praising the Lord and the Lord alone. And I will do this, you see it here, through singing. It will be something beautiful that's coming out of my mouth to reach the very ears of God. And this personal commitment that we make has no expiration date. As long as I have my being, I will praise the Lord. There is the determination that I will not be stopped. Nothing, nothing is going to stop me from praising the Lord. Has anything in your life ever stopped you? Something hindering you? Come back to this commitment. Praise Him. Say the word with your whole heart, with all that you are. Hallelujah. With such an action, we are told what to do. We are to praise the Lord, but then we're told what not to do. 
You see that there in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. Here is the flashing warning sign of danger in this psalm. It's saying, watch out, avoid it at all costs. In the little village of Dalzell, where I live, they have flashing stop signs. Have you ever seen that before? Flashing stop signs that flash red. They're annoying. But you don't miss them. This is the flashing warning sign in this song. Don't miss it. It's saying this, watch out. This is dangerous. This is deadly. Do not, do not, do not put your trust in princes. Such a warning would not need to be heralded if that was not a temptation for us. Princes can here refer to those of, in government positions, although it could be broadened to include any person of high standing in society. And if we apply it to our current situation today, what would we say? Do not trust in any political candidate. Listen to Psalm 118, 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Man and princes can't provide the refuge that your soul needs. Only the Lord is our refuge and strength. So, why is it a temptation for us to trust in princes? First, because we can see princes. We can see them with our eyes. They are, they are tangible. And we have to fight against believing that what our eyes see is everything. We want to live not by sight, but by faith. And the problem is really not that our sight is so dominant, but the problem is that our sight is so limited. If you look to princes and trust in them, you've limited your sight. There is more to see. You've missed the Lord. You've missed looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Do not be deceived by your sight. We're also tempted to trust in princes because we can experience immediate promises that princes make. They say they will do this for me, and they did it. There's no patience needed. There's no waiting. Really, it comes down to oftentimes feeding our own flesh, instant gratification. I want what I want because I think it's good for me, so this prince is going to give that to me. Sometimes the best words to hear are be patient, wait, rely on the Lord. How about this? We are tempted to trust in princes because we lose sight of their limited power and authority. Those who would have no authority unless it was given to them by God. Their power can only go so far. Their promises can only reach so far. Whatever they have, they only have it because of God. And so let us not be deceived to think that they have more power than they really do. We are also tempted to trust in princes because it's easier than following the Lord. 
Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, you follow me. Jesus says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The princes don't demand that from me. They promised me the American dream. Too many Christians are busy hoping and praying that the American dream jives with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rather than saying, if the American dream doesn't go with the gospel, guess what I'm going with? I'm going with the gospel. Now, I am not disparaging freedom at this point. I, in fact, believe that protecting our freedom is important. We must do that because it it allows for greater opportunity for urgent gospel ministry of saying repent and believe, of saying believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I pray that all the freedom that you and I want and that you and I possess would not be sacrificed on the altar of lazy, apathetic, watered-down cultural Christianity which is no Christianity at all and which lies about the gospel. What a waste that would be. If we've been given freedom, let's use our freedom for the gospel good. Let's use our freedom to tell other people about Jesus. Let's do what God would call us to do so that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us renew our sense of gospel urgency with the freedom that we've been given. We should not trust in princes because they are created beings. Here in our text, it says this. Do not put your trust in princes in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. This son of man is a generic, generic term for all mankind. They are no different than you or I. It's time for us to disassociate ourselves from our dependency on man, to renounce Humanism that seeks to cut God out of the picture. And there are more and more platforms that seek to start from the mindset where there is no God. That is dangerous. That is what we must fight against. If there is no God, there is no morality. There is no way to determine what is just. There is no way to know what is right and wrong. There is no way to know and define what love is because God is love. We also do not trust in princes because there is no salvation in them. In whom there is no salvation. We want to be saved. And we know, however, that we cannot save ourselves. So we look for something or someone else to save us. There is no salvation in princes. If you think there is some salvation, some utopia, some place of ecstasy you will arrive at, you are deceived and deluded. Political candidates won't save you. They won't save anyone. And that's not me saying that. That's God saying that. We 
We don't trust princes also because they're temporary. They'll die. When their breath departs, we could also say when their spirit departs, he returns to the earth. Princes are a breath, a vapor, a mist. Their breath and their spirit will leave them. Before you know it, in the blink of an eye, they will be returning to the dust. They can't even stave off death or release us from the curse of death. They will be overcome instead by death. They will return to the ground from which they have come. We also do not trust them because all of their plans die with them. On that very day, his plans will, pl- will perish. Their plans will remain unfulfilled and will die with them. This is when hopes are dashed to pieces when all of their plans perish. Unlike the plans of God. God's plans never perish. Why? Because God never dies. God is eternal. His redemptive plan will be fulfilled, will never, never be questioned. We come to verse 5 then where there's this great contrast. Do not trust in princes, but rather trust in the Lord's saving reign. Reign. It comes to us framed as a beatitude. Just like the Psalms began in Psalm 1, blessed is the man, so now we come to the end with another. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. How do you know if you're trusting in the Lord? Here are two parallel concepts. He is your help and he is your hope. His help and his hope comes through the salvation that he gives It is a divine help, it is a divine hope, not worldly help and not worldly hope. Help and hope that are completely dependent upon God. Let's just take a temperature here of our lives for a moment. With the outcome of the election, whenever we find that out, how are you going to feel? How are you going to respond? And what will that communicate about your trust? What will that show about where your trust truly lies? Who really is your help? Who really is your hope? Jeremiah 17 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And then I love this, whose trust is the Lord. My trust is in the Lord, yes, but even more so, my trust is the Lord. He is my trust. While there is no prince or son of man who can give salvation, there is another. There is a son of man who is the Lord, who does save us, who helps us, who could never have helped ourselves when we are, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, who gives us hope in life and death, hope, does that, hope, that, hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit of God. Here's what it says in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man 
came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the help, and here is the hope of the Son of Man that leads to blessedness. Trust in the Lord's saving reign. Number two this morning. Declare the Lord's gracious reign. Declare the Lord's gracious reign. You find this here now in verses 6 through 9. In order to elicit greater trust in us, we are reminded who the Lord is and what the Lord does. First, He is the Creator God. He is the one who's made heaven and earth. He spoke and called everything into existence that exists. It draws our mind to God's great power. There is no one more powerful. There is no one whose power has been displayed more greatly than the Lord's. And His power is proclaimed and His authority and control is proclaimed. Since He created everything, He owns everything. He is sovereign over everything that He has created. This includes, here you see, the sea. The Lord has authority over the sea. The sea is that thing that is represented as tumultuous, as chaos, It represents uncertainty. If there was anything that you feared, you feared the sea. Wonder if we ever feel like that right now. But the Lord made the sea. The Lord has authority over the sea, and the sea actually obeys the Lord's command when He says, Peace, be still. Just as it heard the voice of its Creator coming from that tiny boat in the Sea of Galilee. He is created by His great power and has control over all things. He is the ultimate governing authority over the world that He has created by His hand and by His power. And we must commend the great power of the Lord by which He created the world because when we commend the great power of the Lord, it swallows up all of our fears. And he's faithful to us, isn't he? Faithful over the creation. It says, who keeps faith forever. The Lord is faithful over that which he has created. Do you fear in a few days that his faithfulness will cease? I know that God has been faithful in the past, but how much longer will this faithfulness go on? Will it continue He keeps faith for how long? Forever. God is faithful today. God will be faithful Tuesday. God's faithfulness will never end. And now we see all of these actions of the Lord that he does. Actions that express his great rule and his great reign. And you see what's happening here. You see it repeated five times. The name of the Lord. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. There's... No question who is doing this. There's no question what is happening. It's the Lord's reign that's doing all of this. And that's meant to press assurance into our hearts that He will fulfill all of these actions. Look at these things that's said here. Justice, giving food, setting prisoners free. 
Who do you trust to do all of these things? Do you depend on the government? Do you depend on a government official? Do you depend upon a government program? They can try, but they will never ultimately succeed. They will never be perfect. They will never do what the Lord can do. And let us not be so blind to think that these actions of the Lord are only taken toward those who are down and out, only taken to those who are the most low, only expressed in such a way to the downtrodden, to those who are completely on the brink of despair. No, these expressions here are true of all of mankind. We should see ourselves in these verses. We are these people to whom we need the Lord to act on our behalf, to move towards us, and so save us. It's what everyone needs the Lord to do for them. Look at our need as those who are are oppressed, as those who are hungry, as those who are in prison, as those who are blind, as those who are bowed down, as those who are sojourners and widows and orphans. If this is how you feel this morning, take comfort, you're not alone. You are in good company. For what can these people do for themselves? They can do nothing. What can these do to relieve their distress, to rescue themselves from their individual prisons? Our hands are completely empty. So what happens when the Lord acts? It's His amazing grace that is at work in us. Here it is the Lord's grace that we cannot miss. That's what we need in our lives. That's what everyone needs in their lives. And the grace of God is like no other, no other grace because His grace saves eternally. His grace brings with it eternal life. His grace brings complete wholeness to broken and wrecked lives. And His action cannot be undone. The Lord's reign reverses people's sinful and flawed conditions for good. He relieves the oppressed. He feeds the hungry to their fill. He frees the prisoner. He causes the blind to see. He raises the abased from the dust heap. He makes a citizen out of the sojourner. He marries the widow. He fathers the fatherless. And notice the contrast here. The Lord loves the righteous, but what? But the way of the wicked, he will bring to ruin. Just like Psalm 1. The way of the righteous that leads to life, the way of the wicked that leads to death. The righteous are guaranteed of God's love. Do you need to be guaranteed of God's love today? God wants you to be guaranteed of his love. God wants you to know that his love will never fail you. So what did he do? He sent his son to do these actions in the world to proclaim the kingdom of God and to save us. Jesus came saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Lord's anointed, I am the true and rightful king. And what did this king do? He who knew no sin for our sake was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. King Jesus provided the great exchange where he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. 
And what does that great exchange do? It assures us that we will always and forever only be the recipients of God's never-failing, steadfast, and sure love. No longer destined for ruin, no longer destined for destruction, no longer headed toward an eternity spent in the lake of fire, but now an eternal home where we only ever know His grace and His abundant love. That brings us to the third response this morning. Praise the Lord for His enduring reign. Praise the Lord for His enduring reign. This final verse in verse 10, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. All worldly kingdoms, all worldly governments will come to an end. They will not go on forever. That is why they can never be our ultimate source of help or hope. And notice here, it's not up to the generations to decide who will reign over them. For it's the Lord who reigns over every generation. It's a reminder that the Lord reigns from Zion. And it's a reminder that with the Lord's reign comes His person and the fact that He dwells with us and will dwell with us as His people. The Lord's reign is not distance and impersonal it's close and intimate and near and it's always good how many things how many things in your life do you ever wish would end oh i just wish that this would end when you're young you have these certain milestones i just can't wait till school ends and sometimes it's, I can't wait till my singleness ends. I can't wait till I have kids. I can't wait till this, till that. Maybe sometimes it's hardship and suffering and health that is in our lives that we wish, oh, I just wish that they would come to an end. Wish that they would stop. I wish that this election season would be over. But there's one thing that never ends. God's reign. And truth be told, we don't want it to end. And the good news is it never will end. So we will never be lost. So we will never be directionless in this world. So we we will never be without hope. Are you fearful today? Does the fear persist? The fear might be persisting because you've never put your faith and trust in King Jesus. If you are depending upon the government to save you, if you are depending upon something in this world to save you, if you are depending upon yourself to save you, know today that those will never ultimately rescue you. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can save you from your sin and from death. Only Jesus can give you the gift of life. 
Only Jesus can cause you to know God's grace in your life. And I love this picture of God's grace. We're so often, we're like a child building that sandcastle there on the beach, in the wet sand. We build castle after castle after castle. And what happens? The waves come in. Wipe out those castles. Cause the sand to become smooth again. Perfect glistening in the sun. Stop trying to build castles. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is enough. You don't need to depend upon all those castles. Let his grace wash over you. Let him lead you home. Let him lead you to that place where he will wipe every tear away from your eyes. Where sin and suffering and death will be no more. Where you will receive the fullness of his love. Where we will know forever that he will never leave us or forsake us. And praise Him. Praise Him. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would cause fear to fly away from our hearts today. And Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know you, who persists in that fear, we pray that they would turn from their sin, repent of their sin, and turn to Jesus now, call out to him, receive him as Lord, commit their life to him, dedicating themselves to following him, the good and everlasting king, wherever he leads. And so Father, we pray the same for ourselves. We would wish that we would only be led into the easy life. But Lord, we know that that is not our path. Because we know our path is through suffering. Just as our Savior's path was through suffering. So let us not be surprised. Let us not be surprised by the tribulation that's in the world. But let us take heart. Let us trust. Let us declare that the Lord's reign is gracious. Giving grace to the sinner. To the downtrodden and despairing to those who are dead and lifeless. We thank you for your grace. And by your grace, we will go on. And by your grace, we will persevere in holiness and godliness. By your grace, we know you will lead us home.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.